All right, we are live. This is uh, portion discussion. Bo. Bo. And uh, I think I think we're just ready. Let's, uh, Joshua. Oh. Away. I thought you were gonna regale us with I tales. Was, I would know. Well, I will. As at any point if we get slow and you want me to. Uh, okay. More than half. Never get slow with Joshua. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's Janie's Joshua All right. I am. Multiple Joshua. Yes, Joshua. That's not coming. No, it's not coming. Well, I, uh, <laughs> we don't know who I think there was a, okay, so it was a slightly quieter, okay. quieter blessing God over from the corner here. But yes, blessed are you, Lord, for the food and the land. Um, uh, yeah, well, okay. I'm used to having announcements and stuff. You got me all, all well, flustered. We, but, I mean, everybody that was uh, we can jump in. here now oh, was here I, I, did, I did want to say something um, about the baby. Yes. Your, whose baby? Your baby? Whose baby is that? Uh, that we are planning to have a Greek bot okay. ceremony. Um, mm -hmm. huh, maybe next Saturday <laughs> or the Saturday after that. We were thinking we would go? steal a Bellatora. Sure. Um, I don't think it would be later than that. <laughs> but <laughs> we could. But it could. Anyway, so we'll send an email out with details about okay. that. Okay. Just, about just so you all know. I mean, what else would you be doing on Shabbat? But, right, yeah, really. Let's celebrate. Which unfortunately helps correct my previous comment from last Shabbat that actually bris is not masculine. It is feminine. It is in fact feminine because it is brit, which is covenant. So brit, as in like the brit chadashah, the kind of thing. So, so it's a bris for your daughter. It's a bris for my daughter. Yes, this is a big, it's a covenant. Welcome to the covenant. Um, yes, so this week is Parashat Bo. Um, and Parashat Bo is kind of a weird, uh, weird, weird word to use to... Uh, Start the car shop. Um, the word is come, which is ironic because the, the passage is really a lot about leaving. Go. Um, well, but but it also means go. Well, kind of. It Context. means come here. Um, Get out of here. Come over here. Yeah. So Bo uh, in in Hebrew, um, the way it's used in this particular passage is come to Pharaoh, and uh, which is ironic because of course the end when you say where Pharaoh is going to tell the people of Israel, "Get out, go." Well, the reason why, according to um, some of the, the Hasidic teaching on this passage that was really interesting is that the uh, Pharaoh represents kind of what's um, our lesser angels, if we might want to call it that, kind of the kind of the worst part of ourselves. And um, and uh, you know, there's this idea I think in in some in some circles, you know, they want to kind of run away sometimes from from things about ourselves we don't like, to want to hide it, to want to bury it, to want to ignore it. Um, but this, but the, the Hasidic teaching on this one, which you got from the um, the uh, the Gutnei Chumash, comments this idea and says that it's more of the sense that it's like you want to um, you want to take on by the horns um, this root cause of evil in your life. You want to defeat it uh, very permanently, and it's not enough to just simply um, try to do good. But you also need to, to find where it is. What, what is it that's driving you to do evil and then try to address it directly? So come to Pharaoh. It's almost like this invitation. Like In order to, to finally achieve exodus and, and, and redemption, um, Moses has to, has to go directly to the source of their, of their slavery. He has to confront Pharaoh directly and deal with it up front. And I think that's an interesting, an interesting lesson and a way to look at, at, look at this from a spiritual perspective in our lives. And the importance of trying to take on the challenges directly and not just simply ignore them or run away from them or pretend like they're not there. Or try to mask them by doing other things. 
Uh, this week also, um, I'm going to steal a little bit from uh, Micah's excellent drosh that he gave uh, for his bar mitzvah last Shabbat. Um, this week also talks a lot about hardening of the heart. Um, the uh, This week in particular, the heart of the heart passage shows that multiple times. Um, in fact, this week begins uh, talking about that idea that uh, Moses tells him, go, or God tells Moses, go talk to Pharaoh, um, tell him to let people go. I have hardened their heart. I've hardened his heart. So he's not going to. Which is kind of a funny thing to do. You know, I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh. But by the way, he's not going to let you go. Um, one of the things that Micah said last week that I thought was really cool was talking about the idea that the Hebrew word for hardening the heart, there's, there's two words. One, is, uh, one has to do with making the heart heavy. Um, if you look at the Hebrew, you see the root there is the same as kavod or glory, which is the same concept, the heaviness. Because um, uh, if you think about it, uh, you know, there's a... Like a, it's like a, it's a, there is a weightiness to someone who has a lot of glory, right? You know, heavy crown, or it's like, you just kind of feel like an awe, like, whoa, you know? So glory, kavod, heaviness. Well, heaviness also applies to the heart, right? Your heart is heavy. You don't want to move. You're kind of sluggish. You're done, whatever. Um, Micah had a good point saying that usually when, or with a verb used for God, this is a God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Hebrew word is actually different. The Hebrew word there is strengthened. Um, the same root is chazak, or, or, or to, make, to make strong do strongly. Um, and I thought it was so interesting because uh, in thinking about this week's, thinking again about Pharaoh as that sort of representation of the evil in our lives, um, and thinking about this idea that uh, God doesn't override Pharaoh's will completely. He, he simply makes him strongly encouraged to do what he's going to do anyway, basically, strengthens his heart. I was thinking that for us, it's kind of the opposite too. We want God to strengthen us to good. You know, that's the thing about in uh, in Romans when when uh, when Paul is talking to the to the believers, he comments that like you're not no longer slaves to unrighteousness but slaves to righteousness. Well, it's not as simple as being a slave to righteousness in the sense that like well now we're going to definitely do good all the time. Um, we're not we're not robots. But in the sense instead, it's the sense almost I think that like God, you know God is strengthening us to do good. He's making that a little easier. Giving us a little more endurance, and I think you think of, there's there's ample evidence I think of prayer for this. You think about Yeshua teaches his disciples, you know, lead us not into temptation. In other words, help me do what I'm supposed to do. And I think that you know we as we go through our lives, we want to make sure we we ask God to help us, to enable us, to make it easier for us to be obedient. You know, um, in Judaism is this idea part of the reason why they had to be freed from ex the Exodus. They had to actually had to be freed from slavery. Is because you can't slaves can't serve God. They don't have their own freedom. They don't have. They can't pick their. They can't keep Shabbat. They can't decide when they want to do their own holidays. You know they gotta. You know basically do whatever they're told. So the part of the the need for freedom is to serve God that they may serve me. Amen. And I think that that's something too. That Judaism teaches this idea. You ask God for blessings in life to make it easy to serve Him. You want to have, you know, better financial blessings so that you can afford to have Shabbat dinner and you can and afford to to keep the holidays, which do cost a little bit, you know, at least in starting expenses. Um, you want to have a job that allows you to take time off that you need for the holidays or Shabbat. So there's there's lots of these types of um, things. It's it's so it's the idea that we want to we want to ask God to make it to make it easier on us. That's not a bad thing. Yes, sir. <laughs> Have a good nap, Richard. <clears throat> well, we were talking about this morning, Romans 1, you know, talks about the kind of the progression of sin and God mm. gives you over. Right. Our, our prayer should be that our that our inclinations should 
that God will not permit our inclinations, in fact, to rule over us. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, forgive me for the uh, movie reference if you haven't seen it, of Little Big Man, where Dustin Hoffman is playing the role of the guide for Custer, and Custer's last stand. And he guides him, actually, he's doing everything Custer asks, and Custer says, uh, you know, keep me in a position so that we can attack the Indians and whatever else. And, and Dustin Hoffman says, well, you don't need to go down there. And he points down to, in fact, the place where you know, the massacre occurs. You don't go want to go down there. And Custer gets so mad at him. And he says, you know, I know you. You're trying to trick me. And, he, and then Dustin Hoffman, the character of Dustin Hoffman says, you go down there. I promise you, you go down there and it will not work out well for you. So you go down there. And it's kind of that same idea. It's like if you're determined to do what is going to hurt you, then God says, then you go down there. Go ahead. You do that. Absolutely. We should pray that would never happen to us. Right. Yeah. I think it's definitely true. I think in Romans 1, um, Psalms talk about this too. God tells the people of Israel, he says, uh, you know, he tells them, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. You know, come and seek me. Seek your desire for me. And he says, this is a psalm of the day that we have on, uh, I think it's on Thursdays. And he says, but they did not hear me. So I let them follow their heart's fantasies. They can do whatever they want. And we, the last thing we want is for God to pull that, that restraint from us to let us do whatever we want. We see that in Romans 1. We see that that, that downward spiral, spiral that people go down to. I mean, some of the things being talked about today as normal, I mean, it's... Um, it's abomination. It's not, yeah, and it's not just a moral abomination. It's, it's for, for, for human... <laughs> It's so ironic to me that people who believe in evolution would possibly think that homosexuality is a normal course of life. It's like, that does actually end your species. It's po quite possibly the worst thing you could do besides, <laughs> you know, mass suicide. Um, and yet, the, the, um, the foolishness of that um, seems wise to people who have completely lost their minds because they've been given over to sin. And I think that that's, that, is the, that is the frightening thing of what happens in... in, in in that downward progression. And we see that in Romans 1. We see that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, uh, one of the things that the, sage, the sages commentary in the Gunung in the Kumash, they ask the question, like, what? Okay, so God sends him to go tell Pharaoh, but he says, don't worry, I've already hardened his heart. Like, why, why does that even, like, what? Why would he even tell him that? We already know that, too, by the way. God's already <clears> told <throat> Moses, he's not going to let you go until, you know. So why does he reemphasize it here? Almost like it's important that he be hardened. And that they emphasize the idea, it's connected to this concept, like, I will make a mockery of Egypt. This idea that Rashi's commentary is saying like because egypt is so worthy of, of the, my punishment so to speak of them what's going to make them seem the most oh, it's gonna be the most dramatic way to finish them off so to speak what if they even when they recognize that they need to give in they can't you know that that helplessness and you kind of see that here with the say the, the 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 advisors come to pharaoh and they go whoa i think he said something about the locusts coming and eating all the grass we don't have a whole lot left. I don't know if you noticed the hail thing with the fire you know, inside of them. Yeah, so there, things are not going well right now. Um, let's not do that. Let's go ahead and let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh is willing to do that. But because of his own sin, God removing that restraint from him, letting him be exactly who he wants to be. And to your point, like going down into this, you know, into the <laughs> little bighorn area, it's like, okay, fine. You want to go and do that? Go. And that's exactly what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh says, well, I'm only going to let you take you know, the adults. We're not going to let you take anything else. And then, of course, this continues to progress until finally we get to the stage where Pharaoh himself is practically begging the people of Israel to leave. It's interesting that Egypt, as we see it here, is a, uh, is, a is presented as the enemy of God. Mm -hmm. 
And yet, and this is one of the things that we, as we do the Passover service, and as we're dripping out the wine, we're actually mourning mm. for the Egyptians because God doesn't delight in the punishment of the wicked. Mm. And uh, to go back to Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman actually follows, or the character, follows Custer into the, va into the valley and fights with him, knowing full well that there's going to be a massacre. So it's the same thing. God's with them. Even the sinner, God is at is is uh, is sorrowful, sorrowful mm. that they've made the wrong choice. For that desire, any should perish. And as we saw in, in Romans 11 that we read this morning, this idea that um, making vessels of wrath, who he who endures with great patience. You know, it's not this. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he's not delighting in it in the sense that he has some sort of sick, sadistic. You know, well, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, kind of thing. It's much more in the sense that God rejoices in justice, and that is something that He is leveling out on on, on Pharaoh here in this passage. Um, uh, separate movie reference, although I'm not actually going to recommend this movie, so I'm not going to give the name. But those of you who have seen it will know what it is. Um, there's a there's a there's the scene here with Pharaoh and Moses to me um, is such a uh, uh, is such a uh, brilliant moment of negotiation that doesn't really work too well. She can't believe you're not going to give me <laughs> Tell me the name. <laughs> Apparently. Um, it's okay, but we can talk later. Um, it's a secret. <laughs> so, uh, but Moses, so Moses and Pharaoh have this little, like, tete-a-tete, -tete, and Moses says, okay, I, you know, Pharaoh goes back and says, okay, okay, well, let some of you go, but not all of you can go. And, and it's so interesting, if you read the Hebrew, he says, which ones are going? Well, in the Hebrew, it's me, me, me and me. Who and who? Who and who is going? And the, the sage's commentary on this, I thought it was so true. It's like he wants a list. Give me, the, give me, okay, there's got to be only what, nine of you that need to go out and do this? So I got, okay, it's Shmuel and David, and okay, y'all can go, fine. But uh, everybody else has to stay. And, uh, and, it's, and so Moses' response is like, oh, no, 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 no. We, we're taking everybody. Everybody's going, and including the kids. And Pharaoh's response, the arrogance in this response is so galling, really. He just comes back and he's like, no, 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 no. The children are not going. You don't want the children to go. You only want the adults to go. He's telling Moses what Moses wants. You only want the adults to go. And they can go. That's fine. But the kids, no, no way. Absolutely not. These are not the droids you're looking for. Right. And so, and what is Moses? <laughs> but you know what I love about it? Moses doesn't argue with them. Moses just leaves. The next day, locusts show up. It's like, okay, fine. We can play that game. Then the next, the next round. Okay, so now Pharaoh's back. <laughs> Darkness has, has fallen, and, and 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 all this. I mean, unbelievable stuff, devastation, whatnot. Pharaoh's like, fine, you guys can go. You can even take the kids, but um, but your animals, they can't go. You know, you need to. You know, they you can't bring them. They got to stay here. And again, of course, that's a little silly because the idea was to offer sacrifices. And Moses's response is like, I love Moses' response. Moses doesn't say, okay, let's talk about it. Moses doesn't even say, no, 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 it's not going to work for us. Moses says, no, we are going to take everything. And you're. And you're going to give us some extra. <laughs> and so the scene from the movie that I'm thinking of is this mob boss. And he has had this sort of, you know, business deal going on with the government official. And the government official comes to him and decides to start trying to renegotiate. It's like, I don't, it's not going to work so well for me. So uh, I think, you know, my relationship with you is not so pleasant. I think I need a little extra cut. And oh, by the way, the fee for this has gone up. The mob boss's response is, is a classic here from Moses to me. It's exactly the same idea. He, he says, my offer is nothing. 
And actually, I would greatly appreciate it if you would contribute the cost of the fee from your own money. Um, not surprisingly, the mob boss gets what he wants in the end. The, but the point that I'm getting at is I think Moses like, ups the ante even more. It's like, not only is he saying, I would appreciate it if you would, you know, offer some offerings to go with us. He's like, no, you will. You told me what I want. I'll tell you what you will do. Because the God that I'm serving, he knows what's going to happen. He's already told me what's going to happen. And you are powerless to stop this. And that, and that, that I think that one of the things that the Exodus teaches us that we um, sometimes I think can lose track of is, is the awesome power of God. Because up until now, we've seen God do miracles. I mean, the flood is a tremendous uh, exp uh, experience of God's power over creation. We see God giving a, a Isaac uh, to Abraham and Sarah when they're way past childbearing. We see miracles. But the plagues, and ultimately, most importantly, I think, the crushing of Pharaoh's will shows that God is truly in charge of everything, including human events. You know, it can sometimes feel like, well, God's going to respect hum humans enough to let them, you know, do their own evil. But even at that, God draws the line in the sand here, and he's like, no, I will do what I want to do. No one can stand, before, stand up to me and prevent me from doing what I'm going to do. And you get that so clearly, I feel like, in this week's Parsha in particular, where at the end of it all, I just, I love the end of it. And, and Moses, it's funny because, of course, the sages say he's kind of being respectful to Pharaoh. But he's like, look, by the time this is all over, your people will be begging us to leave. Gregory, oh, yes, sir. Yeah, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs this week was pointing out how the plague of darkness, the ninth plague, it seems a lot of place, right? A little anticlimactic because of how dramatic some of the other plagues have been. And then he pointed out, to your point, that plague was all about essentially completely getting rid of and, and slamming the god of Egypt, right. the sun god, right? right. And, uh, and I didn't even realize, I guess, that Pharaoh means son of the sun god. Oh, that, okay. That name, the name Pharaoh. Uh, but that, that was why it was saved towards the end, was it was just one of those last things, like, you've seen them make a mockery of Pharaoh. You've seen them make a mockery of Egypt. You've seen them make a mockery of all the things that they relied in before. And now the number one head honcho god that you relied in, now that's made, been made a mockery of right. as well. And that's why it's one of the last ones, because it's, uh, it's meant to send a, a message to all of Egypt. Absolutely. And I, um, it's a, in the, um, the movie The Prince of Egypt, the, the, the scene when darkness comes on that it's it's you see the sun setting well whatever you want to call it, the darkness setting and uh, and as the darkness the shadows begin to set this enormous idol and character whatever just begins to just crumble and collapse underneath the as the darkness falls and that's really exactly what God's doing God is God is making it very clear that He's the only God and that all the rest of this is, is uh, all the other gods of the earth are nothing as we as we read. Um, and this particular um, plague as well, I don't know if you, those of us who've been following on Tuesday nights, um, all they have all this end times stuff, and, and one of the things is the plague, is a plague of darkness. There is a darkness. And it's interesting that in, in the Exodus plague, the, the Rashi, and looking at the Hebrew, he says that this is a, the darkness is, the way you look at it, the way it's written, it carries this idea of almost like it, it's tangible. You can feel the darkness. And the tradition holds that um, it actually held the Egyptians in place. That like when the darkness set in, yeah, they, it, they well that just couldn't go out. They couldn't move. 
like that they were sitting down they couldn't stand up if they were standing up they couldn't sit down it was like it just you know like you know this sort of weird ether just kind of throws them all in place um uh and so it's this and, and in revelation we get this same image um in fact it's upped just a little bit because in revelation it says that there's darkness and then it says that the uh the beast and his officials or whatever people who follow him they gnash their teeth in pain there's this idea that like it's actually a painful darkness um so you see that that parallel, this idea of like what happens before happens again later, and if you if you've ever read through the entire book of Revelation, um, and 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 focused less on trying to figure out if Hitler was the Antichrist and a whole lot more on or Ronald Reagan or Ronald Reagan uh, or Gorbachev or you know insert whoever has to be president at the United at the time, um, the uh, um, the important thing is if you look at if you look at just the, the text itself, you find the whole book is basically a worship of God. It's, it's a, it is a demonstration of the awesomeness of God. And I think that sometimes as you read about Yeshua, or you read the Psalms, you read some other passages, it's so, you can lose that a little bit. You can kind of lose track of the fact that the God that we serve is awesome, and is terrifying, and is in complete and total control of everything. Who does not who does not wink at evil? He's not ignoring it because he doesn't care, because you've outsmarted him. And oh, you know, I didn't think about doing it that way. Well, you get that one. He is do, he is waiting because he's patient, but at the end, he will give people what they deserve, and it will be terrifying, beyond comprehension. And uh, I think it's uh, I think in that regard, it's appropriate that if you try to read Revelation and try to figure out you in your mind's eye what it looks like or how it works you kind of can't it kind of doesn't fit i think the one that i think the most of we were just reading through this past week was the locust and uh you know it's like face uh what was it like uh faces like man mouth like a lion teeth you know made out of metal and you know a scorpion tails and all this stuff and people have tried to figure out oh, well sir you know these are tanks or these are robots or these are biological weapons or these are you know whatever it might be and it's almost like, wait, but you don't know. We have no idea. Because it's beyond our comprehension. God has this stored up for whatever his plan is. Um, I thought it was interesting that the, uh, the locust plague for this parasha, it says, unlike anything Egypt has seen or ever will see again. And uh, the sages are very wise to jump in here and say, look, let me make it clear. It's not that this was the worst locust plague forever. It's that this particular locust plague would never be repeated. So like this particular locust plague... It was so dramatic because it was all one type of locust. But in Joel, where this horrifically awful locust plague is described, that's four types of locust. So the Joel one is actually could be worse, but this one is... I think of the same thing with Revelation. It's like, well, the Revelation one sounds a whole lot worse <laughs> than, than this one. Um, but this was so dramatic in that the way that it was carried out, it was, it was pretty significant. Um, I got the bottom line of my dad. So um, I mentioned it earlier... Um, but the Daily Wire has a, a picture of the holy site of Mecca filled with people. It says, um, the pilgrimage hub of Saudi Arabia got hit with a plague of biblical proportions earlier this week <laughs> when a massive swarm of locusts descended upon the Islamic holy site of Mecca. In several videos posted online, locusts were seen crawling around Mecca's Grand Mosque, creeping their way across the stone slabs, providing a small snapshot of what Pharaoh saw during the Passover thousands of years ago. One particularly searing video showed a cloud of flying pests descending their way over the wall, illuminated by the towering floodlights. 
behold the eeriness. And then, of course, they've got the YouTube shot that you can actually watch that happen. According to the Times of Israel, Mecca authorities have been working tirelessly all week to clean up the infestation. <laughs> Specialized teams have been directed to work in the fight to eliminate these insects, authorities in Mecca said, according to the Al-Arabi Al-Jadid news site. We've harnessed all efforts available to speed up the eradication of the insects in the interest of the safety and comfort of guests of God's house. <clears throat> according to CNN's Arabic website, the locusts have been identified as black grasshoppers and 22 teams with 111 pieces of equipment have been dispatched to handle the infestation. It goes on from there. Um, but he says, uh, he closes by saying, Quran verse 7, 133 says the following about God's plague upon the people of Egypt during the time of Moses. Quote, then we afflicted them with a great flood and locusts and the lice and the frogs and the blood. All these were distinct signs and yet they remained haughty. They were wicked people, unquote. The Quran notes that the plagues convinced the Egyptian pharaoh to release the Israelites, paving the way for them to the promised land. I just should have read their own book, I guess. God's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> and uh, maybe it's prep time. <laughs> I just want to get you used to the locusts. Used to the locusts. Yeah, I mean, the picture that's painted here in the Exodus is, is whoa. I mean, they're talking about, like, you can't well, see it's the ground. Dark. It's, it's dark because... There's locusts everywhere. Everywhere. And I think it's it's fascinating to me that the way God does it. I, I, as I'm reading through Revelation again, I was struck by this too. God says a, sends a big wind to bring the locust in and the big wind to bring the locust out. And it kind of makes you wonder how many of those you know Egyptian astrologers and whatever else said, um, well, that was the worst locust storm I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, it wasn't God. That was just, you know... There was a cyclone over off this coast, you know, and, and the wind was going this way, and, you know. And I was, I was reading even through Revelation, and you're reading through, like, you know, uh, you know, what sounds like the atmosphere is practically on fire, and, you know, the stars from heaven are falling, and, and just imagining, you know, the scientist on CNN being like, this is what we were warning about with global warming. There have been too many factories running, too many people driving their cars. And Trump's now the air is on fire. The air is on fire. And, Trump's fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's definitely because of Russian collusion. The point is that... Um, the uh, if you, I, it, God, let us believe what we want to believe, and I think that it seems to me as you read through this passage, it's so interesting how God chooses, even in his some of his most dramatic miracles, to do them in a way that would allow the, that would allow the his enemies to negate him, to say, well, it's not, it's not really God. I, I refuse to repent because it's not really. But by the end of Revelation, it says that they. That even everyone basically recognizes, and they hate God for it, but they recognize it's coming from Him. Right before that, though, all this is going on, and there's and they and they actually it causes them to curse God mm -hmm. and complain. Mm -hmm. It's just stupid. they call for the rocks and fall. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah, I've seen too many movies where you know some you know Liam Neeson defeats the gods or something like that. <laughs> Couple. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I was just gonna say when I lived in Texas in high school, there was a. Locust front that came through one time. Only time I ever heard it happening. And it was gross. And they didn't last that long, but you literally, I remember the sidewalk in front of our house was just covered. There was no way to walk without stepping on, oh, that's gross. on them. And then they went out again. But it was, it was weird. So I can't imagine what this was, but just that little short portion that we had, just to think, I don't even walk outside because there's nowhere to walk. Gotta watch your dog. It's a chick flick <laughs> with a horse.
Uh, actually, when, when I was a kid, northern Congo, which we had winds blow from the north, sandstorms come from, from Sudan from, and from Egypt and with locusts. And it's like, first of all, the sky is absolutely dark. You hardly see because of the dust. And then the locusts are just everywhere. Everywhere. Of course, it's protein, too. So. There we go. Mm -hmm. yeah. make, make a meal of it. Locusts are your friends. They're kosher. Uh, yeah. uh, I just want to talk about uh, in verse 3. It says, uh, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And sometimes we kind of we kind of use these these possessives maybe incorrectly. We call we call Hashem God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not recognizing that actually those are names, not just names of men. That's those are God's name. Mm -hmm. This actually is God's <clears throat> name. It's Elo Elohe uh, Ha'avrim. So he is his name is Ha'avrim. He's the God of the Hebrews, which means when he, when he says, do not touch my anointed, <laughs> this is, you know, we talk about how Egypt gets humbled. God, in, in a way, in a way, humbles himself by naming himself for these people. Mm -hmm. And you're messing with them? Right. Big mistake. Big yeah, mistake. Big so anti-Semitism, even, even a hint, even a thought, is is worthy of God's anger because it's his name. He's the God of the Hebrews. Absolutely, no, I think it's a good point. And I think that um, you know, going back to earlier, so there are times when God displays Himself in a way to make it obvious it's God doing it, but there are other times that God allows wicked men to misinterpret what He's doing. Um, it's no it's no coincidence in my mind that by the time that World War II was over, uh, Nazi Germany had been utterly devastated, I mean phenomenally devastated, and that for the next uh, almost 50 years their ca their half their country was conquered by the Russians. Their capital city had a, had a uh, barbed wire running to the center of it for decades in which families were split up and whatever else and it was, to me, it, it, it definitely resonates as, as punishment, as God saying, you touched my anointed, now let me show you what I think about that. And uh, it's not, and ironically enough, the country that was kind of being used to judge them, um, they themselves, I think, were, were being judged. The Russians were known for horrific anti-Semitism for centuries. And, um, and then you see, you know, as the, when the Russian people took over and said, we'll put our, we'll put our own people in, we'll, we'll be our own gods, uh, communism ended up being the worst thing that ever happened in Russia. They spent decades of, I mean, millions of people died of starvation. And you think about, again, I think going back to what we're talking about here, God sometimes lets us judge ourselves. He lets us put ourselves in places to punish ourselves for our own sins because um, the things that we've done in the past, he takes away those, those, those guardrails. And now, okay, well, you, you want to you wanna do that? Fine. You can do that. It's going to hurt, but that's what, um, that's what you really want to do. But on the flip side, I think the last plague here, um, God makes it very clear who's doing it. Because the whole point of this was ultimately that the Egyptians would recognize that God was the one doing these miracles, that the people of Israel would see that God was the one doing it. So the last play, God makes it clear, I will go through Egypt. I will go out. And, uh, and in the Haggadah, we read in the, in the Passover Seder, that's exactly what we say. God, and not an angel. It wasn't an entity on behalf of God. God didn't move, work through an emissary. God himself saved the people of Israel. God himself brought on the last plague that changed everything. 
and it, it kind of, um, you know, it's, it's like in the, uh, uh, I feel like in, you know, the movies or whatever else, it's like, you know, you, you don't want, you don't really want to, you don't want to mess with the most powerful entity in, in, in the whole thing. And at the, you know, at the very climax, whatever, they finally show up. I got to step in. I got I to gotta do something. I got to involve myself. You think of a parent, you know, two little kids maybe misbehaving or whatever else, and your kid's getting picked on. The last thing that other kid really wants is for you to get involved. As long as they're going to be the other kid, it's like, look, he's only, he, he's only so much bigger than you or the same size or smaller than you or whatever. It's like, y'all can work it out. I get involved, that, that, that's going to end badly. And, you, you chose know, poorly. You chose poorly. Um, you don't want that to happen, uh, and so that I think if you, um, if you look at if you look at this, I feel like this is exactly what we come to. God said, "Okay, fine. You won't listen to any of my emissaries. You won't follow any of my plagues. You continue to enslave my people. I'm getting involved directly now." Um, and I think it, you know, I I can't help but notice the. Um, well, I'll get to that point in a minute. Yes, sir. Well, I was going to go on to uh, twelve. Go, so go ahead and finish. Oh well, one of the things I, I think that's so interesting here is. There's a weird, there's a back and forth in the sages on this this week's portion, trying to figure out what's with the very unusual timing marker that God gives for the plague of the firstborn. Well, the midnight thing? It's not midnight. It's around midnight. In fact, it's, but it's around midnight. But there's no day. God doesn't say because you read it, it reads like around midnight tonight. But that's not actually what happens because the next chapter, God tells Moses, so this is the first month, and the tradition is well, he's looking at the new moon. When he, and he makes it very clear. He tells the children of Israel on the 10th day of the month, you're going to do this. So we're talking days, right? Weeks. So God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, you know, around midnight. Well, around midnight on some day, at some time. We don't know when. Um, but then Rashi's actually so troubled by the around midnight reference. He says, well, well, Moses says around midnight because he was afraid that the Egyptians would, would hold God to exactly midnight. And they would, get, they would actually measure their own time wrong. Um, and that then they would re they, well see God wasn't really doing it. So he said around midnight, even though God told him exactly midnight. Um, the sages struggle with this. They don't know what it is. Um, I think there's a lot of good explanations. That was very plausible. My own personal to throw into the ring of the myriad of them. I think God recognized that what the Egyptians had done for decades was to put his people in a state of constant fear. For all this time as slaves, potentially get dragged out of your house, put to work or put to death, dragging their children away and throwing them in the Nile. Uh, all of this acts of violence against them throughout this time, they had no control over their own lives. So God's response to Pharaoh is, I will threaten you with one last plague. It's the worst one of all, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when it's going to be, but I'll give you a hint, just enough so that every night you can't sleep straight. Just enough so that every night you're wondering, is it tonight? Well, I'll go to sleep anyway. Sleep fitfully. Wake up. Wait. Oh, okay. It's it's midnight. Was that, what was that? Was that sound? Did you hear that? I didn't hear. Did you hear that? And sure enough, when the plague of the firstborn happens, it says Pharaoh awoke at midnight. So I think that God was. It's a measure for measure. You put my people through psychological agony. I will do the same to you. I will tell you generically when it's going to happen at the worst possible time for humans, middle of the night, but I won't tell you what day or exactly when, and you're just going to have to wait and see. And it's amazing, too, because it's not given, because he doesn't give him a day, he also doesn't really give Pharaoh, he gives Pharaoh kind of a weird way of uh, an out, a weird out. 
Pharaoh has the opportunity then to go, wait, 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 never mind. I'm sorry, my bad, you can have But he also doesn't give him a deadline to be like, well, if we can just make it past this day, or I know I have two more days, so we can have him in the slaves for a little bit longer. It's like he really puts a lot of pressure on Pharaoh to really let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. Yeah. You want to keep the people here? Fine. It's coming. You don't know when. But you want to move on. Yes, sir. Psychops. Yep. Yeah, so this is a you know, famous uh, first... First mitzvah given to the uh, to the nation. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. Hakodesh, um, Hazei. So um, I was I was looking uh, or just talking with Alan last night, I think. And I'm like, wait a minute, sixth or seventh of Shabbat. What is the month that comes after Shabbat? And I thought to myself, I'm pretty sure it's a dark, but I hadn't looked it up. And, I'm like, well, wait a second, it can't be a dar because that would mean that Pesach is like coming right up. Of course, it's the next month is a dar, but this is a uh, leap year, so the month after that is also we're having a dar too, uh, you know. And uh, will there poor, be in a dar three? Poor, poor will be in that, so uh, but yeah, this is uh, it's interesting. This is the first month, and I just yeah, I think we should we should make note of it. I, I want in this year to to actually mark that better. Alan and I don't do real good at. Celebrating it, doing something. Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, because um, I, I, I think it's important. Well, if you if you do pray a regular more basis in the morning, there are a whole bunch of bonus prayers they mm -hmm. throw in for Rosh Hashanah, which is yeah. a great way, especially as a man, especially in the winter time when you know the schedule is kind of wonky with your you know sun's already set by the time you're leaving work. Um, it's a really good opportunity to kind of mark that yourself in in terms of worship. Um, don't always have the time for it, but there's also a Musaf prayer there that you actually are not. It's not. From what I understand, just looking at my Siddur, it's not restricted to a minion. So you can go through and pray that um, in addition. So that's another, and there's some really cool stuff in there about God. Um, uh, you know, basically, uh, if I remember correctly, it's, it's one of the, some of those ones where you're asking God, like, look, we want to do these offerings again. We want to come back before you, and, right. and we want you to come and reestablish your kingdom. And I think it's fascinating to me that, that this that's how this passage, um, this exodus really begins, is with the new, new moon. Because Judaism teaches that the moon is symbolic of Israel, that it waxes and wanes like Israel does, and that Israel has their times of great uh, success and, and blessing, but then because of sin, they, they tend to decline. But like the moon, they are always going to come back. They never, they never disappear completely, even when things seem most bleak. And it's so fascinating to me that this way that this, that this passage begins, this, this, this kick off to the Exodus, it starts at the, at the most dark point. Well, he, God tells Moses, this is the beginning of the month. It's like, see that little tiny, teeny, tiny sliver squinch a little bit? That's the moon. That's where we start. And that's where we're at right now. It feels like total darkness. Nine plagues still haven't been let go. I mean, can it get any worse than this? But by the time they leave, on the night they leave, it's a full moon. We've actually reached the other, the other end of the spectrum. Now the moon is at its brightest. You know, you're, to your point, I mean, the, the plague of darkness having just happened right before this, would literally have been when there was no moon. <laughs> right. So it's like you kind of, almost like it's this, it's this sense that things may seem so bleak right now that there is no hope. But by the time, but in the same way that the moon is always is always moving to this cycle where it's going to be full again, there's going to be light again, that's exactly what ends up happening. And by the time they leave on that night, on Pesach night, the moon is full again, almost symbolically saying, Israel has been brought back to its full strength. 
I'm taking the people out and we're gonna, I'm going to restore, restore them and bless them again. Um, another thing that's really cool about this passage, the sages point out, Rashi points out, um, Moses and Aaron both give this command, which is kind of weird. Like, what did they say at the same time? You know. Um, but actually, there's a neat little drosh, midrash about this that that they would um, that they would actually uh, almost like defer to each other. What? Well, here, here, you you tell me. You, can you remind me what did God say? And, and the other one would say, Oh no, you you tell me what God would say. And they would they would start to speak to each other, and like there'd be like this cool like you know orb of vocal sound that would be between them and kind of like emanate from the middle of them like this is what god said you know that kind of this kind of idea and i and what was kind of cool about it is um is these that that picture of humility of these two men they're they're so insistent on giving the other one an opportunity to deliver the first commandment to the people of israel they're so they're so um dismissive of their own honor and uh, and popularity and whatever else that they that they're almost like no 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 you do it you do it um, earlier I thought this was kind of cool we were in uh, I was in the other room and the Bartos kids were sitting out for, for lunch and uh, and Aaron Henry had grabbed a big big cushy pillow chair and he sat in that and Sophia came over and grabbed the other one well Zoe Zoe walks in and, well there's only two chairs and there's three people so um, uh, you know, so, so Sophia says, um, "So, so you can, uh, you can use, you can use, you can share with me. You can share in my chair." And so I said, "No, that's fine. I'll, I'll stand up." Um, and then she's like, "No, never mind. I, I will come sit with you." So she comes over to come sit with Sophia. And then Aaron, Aaron gets up. He, he stands up and he like he steps over. And he's like, "No, Zoe, you can take my chair." And it was really kind of sweet to see these siblings like almost fighting with each other to let the other one take take their take their uh, come share the chair that with was them. Really sweet, Sophia and Zoe and, and Aaron. Um, that could have had a different ending. It could have been. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stop. All we needed to hear was the good. But, uh, but that was exactly the, see, that's the picture we get from Moses and Aaron here. They're almost like one-upping each other. Like, I want you, no, I want you to tell them. And it's really, and it, it's so, I think it's so beautiful that they are the picture of brotherly unity. In the, in the book of Psalms, it references the anointing of Aaron. How, behold, a good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. And it's like the oil flowing off of Aaron's beard. Why is that a picture of brotherly unity? It's because who's anointing Aaron? Moses. Aaron is getting the most important, prestigious role in the worship of God. And his little brother is the one saying, is the one anointing him and giving him that honor. And he's not jealous, and he's not arguing with him. There's no conflict. He's just happy that he is getting that honor. And then on the flip side, when Aaron meets Moses, God has called out Moses to come be the spokesman for him, to save the people from Egypt. And he would like his big brother to be his, like, to give dictation to Pharaoh. You know, it's like, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, as a big brother, that's a, that's a little humbling. Like, so your little brother, he's going to be the superstar, the greatest guy of, every, of all time. I'm going to speak to him. He's going to tell you what to say, and you're going to tell that to Pharaoh. And it's like... Okay, God, that's fine. Fine. But instead, Aaron is thrilled. Aaron goes to meet Moses with excitement in the, in the wilderness. Um, and, and actually, the, 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 they, they, uh, they point out, the sages point out, that like this gets written in the Torah. You know, Aaron meeting Moses is a, is a moment in the Torah because of the fact that Aaron does it so well. 
And I think that so you see these two brothers in unity. This is, this is the picture of how we all should be, um, almost competing with one another to do good deeds, wanting the other person to have glory, wanting the other person to have the credit, wanting the other person to, because the job is more important. And more certainly in our case, the service of God is what's most important. And you kind of see that picture here um, with the, the two brothers wanting the other one to get the commandment. Yes, sir. Uh, you're talking about the sparks between Moses and Aaron. Reminds me actually in the, in the second century where uh, Eliezer uh, ben Hyrcanus actually was, was the heretic, right? Oh, right. Possibly a believer in Yeshua. Anyway, yeah. as he starts espousing Torah, everyone is like stunned because there's like the glow in the middle of at the, at the front or in the middle of the academy, and there says there's sparks coming from his mouth. So we get towards the end here. Um, we have Pesach. Uh, this particular um, moment is uh, God asks something from the people of Israel. God's going to save them. Period. That's going to happen. But it's interesting that God doesn't just say, all right, hang tight, everybody. Get ready. We're going to leave any day now. They specifically have to go and make an offering. And uh, the book of Ezekiel um, it says that I have uh, redeemed you by your bloods, plural. Um, and the tradition, according to the, the sages, is that it's referencing two things. One is circumcision. Um, one of the few commandments that seemed like the Israelites kept in Egypt was circumcision. Um, the other is, um, is the blood of the Passover. Specifically because the blood of the Passover is a triumph over idolatry. Um, the uh, by, by one of the things we saw earlier in this portion was uh, or previous portion was Pharaoh says to Moses, "Hey, look, look y'all just worship God here. Like, you know, I can't let y'all leave. But if you want to just, you know, kill some animals down the street, that's fine." And Moses's response is, "Well, we can't kill can't the deity of Egypt here. You know, yeah, we could. But... I mean, you guys worship lambs. We're going to offer lambs. It's going to look bad. You know, I don't think the Egyptians <laughs> are going to be okay with that." Um, you know, I mean, to put it in maybe more modern context, so we can kind of understand, it'd be like. You know, the only way that I get to, uh, I, the only way I can really properly celebrate my own heritage is to send an American flag on fire. We're going to do it in the middle of Washington, D.C. in front of the Capitol building. It's like, yeah. On July 4th. That's not maybe the most appropriate thing to do. So, in this case here, um, the, uh, uh, God tells the people of Israel, oh, okay, you can do it, maybe in your homes, but we're going to kill the, the, the deity of Egypt. In Egypt. And then we're going to smear the doorpost with the blood. Just to kind of make it clear what happened. And the people of Israel do it. Their level of faith in God at this point has risen to so much level that they're not only willing to, uh, to throw off idolatry in general, I think the symbol of that, but furthermore, they're also willing to, um, they're also willing to take on the, the, the threat of the people of Egypt. They've dismissed the, the perceptions of those around them. Serving God is the only thing that matters. But I thought it was interesting that, that, that they chose to do something. God required them to do something before God would save them. God was already going to save them. But he wanted them to invest somehow before that happened. And if you think about it, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, the people of Israel were not just being freed from slavery physically. It was a psychological freedom of slave, from slavery. Uh, one of the things H.I. Fleischer and Rabbi Mike talk about a lot is this idea that you don't just step out of slavery. Just because you're physically free doesn't mean you're no longer a slave. 
The mentality is so drilled in that you're stuck that way. Rabbi Mike is a psychologist. So this idea is that um, for the, that entire generation even still struggled with this, even in the wilderness. So there was this difficulty of, let's go back to Egypt. And, you know, almost like this, and at times they sort of thought of themselves almost like they were slaves still. They, didn't, they couldn't really embrace what God had planned for them. Even at the end, they couldn't go into the land of Israel. Um, and you kind of get this, and you kind of get that sense here. It's like this, this is a threshold that has to be crossed. Um, we sing uh, uh, the song, Sim Shalom. We ask God to give us peace. What's weird about that song, that prayer, is that the first stanza, the first sentence, is give us peace. Then, a couple sentences later, we ask God to help us to love peace. That's kind of a weird thing. Like, why do we need to, why do we need to love peace? And I think the reason for that is because, you know, God can give you all the peace he has, but if you're not open to it, it won't matter. So we have to ask God to, to enable us to want what he wants. And I think that's kind of what God's doing here at the Exodus. He wants the people of Israel to want to be free, to want to possess it, to be part of it. And then once they do that, then only then can he take them out. Because until they've decided they choose to act as free, they will always be slaves, even when they're physically out. So they have to cross that threshold. I, I told Juliana as an example this morning. There's a, there, uh, there was, I remember we were talking about how a few years ago some of the guys were kind of like being all bold and tough or whatever else they're like we're gonna start taking cold showers because that's supposed to like boost your testosterone and you know whatever else and it's like and this is after uh, i think gregory had um sophia and zoe and he's like I, I would like to have a son so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do you know boost the testosterone trying to be happy to have a son um what's funny <laughs> about that what's funny about that is that there's some other people who might argue i've heard some other ideas that testosterone doesn't necessarily result in male offspring ironically enough it actually can result in the opposite. Um, what's fascinating about this, so as you know, he holds a daughter. I mean, well, I'm, I'm just thinking about, yeah, exactly right. Three. It can. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I don't think obviously God's in charge, so the actual math of it doesn't always work that way. But the, they're talking about the science, right? So the science behind it. Um, but you know, what? I told Julian, I said, you know what? It did work. His next child was a boy, and you know what I think it might have been? It's because his 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 body said, "Oh, this really matters to you." Okay. Like, I mean, okay, I agree. You know, you wanted a son, fine. We kind of got the head was thinking about this, but once that's like, that's really cold. <laughs> okay, okay. His body might have said, let's get the boy out of the way so we can stop this fun. <laughs> but I think. But you don't I, do this anymore. I've had some cold showers since. <laughs> and the next one was a girl. Uh, but the point that I'm trying to get at is that the idea of psychosomatic. brother in law. The idea of psychosomatic. No, I'm thinking it was praise. He put it, my point is that he did something. I believe that the psychosomatic stuff is real. You, when you do something, it actually biologically changes you. You know, you think about people who die from a disease, and then other people who have the same disease that live for years. And what they oftentimes talk about is that love of life. That that when you when you gave up, that's when you die. And that is exactly what I'm talking about here. Like, you know, to Gregory, having a son was really important. So he took actual physical steps to get to that place, and it happened. And I think that that's exactly what's happening here with the Exodus. They, it's really important to them. You're going to do something about it. When you do something about it, then it will happen. And I think that's an illustration for us, too. You have a personal struggle you're dealing with. Do something about it. Take a physical, concrete step toward doing something different. Throw the cigarettes in the trash can or whatever it might be. But do something actually yourself to, 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 uh, to demonstrate to your own self, even, that this matters to you. I got my father-in-law and my mom. Okay. 
you have no credibility when you say throw the cigarettes in the urine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, having never smoked. Mm-hmm. Having never smoked. Um, I was... Uh, Praise God. <laughs> amen. That's Not that exactly I actually right. think that that's a sin. It's just really unhealthy. And, and really, the ashtrays are... Oh, the first, nasty. That's the first oh, man. Anyway, um, I just want to... This uh, verse you just brought us to on the 14th of the whole assembly of the congregation... Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight, right? Um, so that's Shechat, uh, and that first occurrence is when Father Abraham mm. began to offer his son. That's the first occurrence. The, the very next occurrence is when Joseph's robe was dipped in the blood that they had slaughtered the lamb in. Mm. And then this third one is this one. That's cool. Where the Passover is there. So if you look at the beloved son, you look at the father who sacrifices his son, you look at the lamb, you know, the lamb of God, gosh, this is, this works. This works really well. The verb for slaughtering. Yeah. That's yeah, very cool. Really is cool. Very cool. Yes. In uh, John 5, the story of the man killed at the pool of Bethesda, I've heard a couple of teachings recently on this, and that Everybody's confused why the master comes up to him and says, do you want to be made well? Mm-hmm. Right. And the man says, I have no one to put me in the pool. The angel comes and so he gets in front of me. And so he says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And so the idea is, why would the master ask him? Why would Jesus say, why do you want this? And it was to make him realize, I've been sitting here for 38 years. Do I really want this? Right. Am I willing to stand up and get up and walk? And yeah. it's the same idea that that Yeshua went to him and said, "Think about this, and and are you willing to make the changes? Are you willing to walk this walk that you will have to walk because you've been stuck for all the years?" Right. Know? So it's the same sense of, of understanding what you're called to. You let go, let God. It doesn't really. Work. <laughs> That's not really the model we have. It's not. Um, God, as we were talking about earlier about, about will, free will and so forth and Pharaoh and hardening the heart and all those things um, I really do see so much of it does boil down to there's this, from our perspective it's about our actions, what we do from God's perspective it's season star, he's sovereign from our perspective it's about our actions and I think it's so interesting that when Micah was talking he was saying that the two words for hardening of the heart one is to make it heavy and one is to strengthen What's fascinating about that is he, as he, as he correctly pointed out, God strengthens Pharaoh. It's a different word. What's funny is though, when God at the beginning of this parsha, when God tells Pharaoh, tells Moses, "I've hardened Pharaoh's heart and the heart of his servants," he uses the other word. He actually says, "I have made their hearts heavy," and I think that my view is that from from a from a you know free will perspective, whatever, uh, he had strength. He strengthened Pharaoh's heart. He enabled Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh wanted to do anyway. But from a end result perspective, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He made Pharaoh do what God wanted him to do because ultimately, ironically enough, that's what Pharaoh wanted too. Um, and if you think about it, I think that um, I think that's so true for our own lives. You know, we, we, we can feel sometimes, you can feel like, especially if you have a, ha- a bad habit, whether it's something, um, it could be something like the Shahara, it could be anger, it could be so many different things that you might could deal with. The, they can feel overwhelming. They can feel like a slave. You're a slave to it. You're stuck with it. You don't know how to get rid of it. And um, and, and I think this portion is really emphasizing, um, like, 
there is a way out. But this, the way out starts with steps. You have to take steps. You have to do something. You can't just say, well, God will do it for me. You have to act. And in this case, they had to offer the offering and the, the, the Passover lamb. The sages teach that the lake of darkness was partly done uh, because God, is a midrash, because God killed the people of Israel who didn't want to leave during the plague of darkness. And he didn't want the Egyptians to see that and to say, ah, see, we knew it. It's not actually God. The Israelites are dying too. So he chose to send the plague of darkness so they couldn't see anything. And then he took out the ones who didn't want to go, um, which is such an interesting thought. I mean, you think about it, like the people of Israel who did leave, <laughs> they were not perfect. A lot of problems in the wilderness. All of those problems got ignored. The one thing that was not okay was they didn't want to leave. They had to want to get out of slavery. Like you're talking about, Mom. You had, he had to want it, he had to express that he wanted it, and he had to do something about it. He had to stand up. There's a lot of pride riding on the line when you're crippled and, and Yeshua says, get up and walk. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it's not going to look pretty. Well, it's like lots of <coughs> She walked out, but her heart wasn't in it. Right, exactly right. And she turns around. Yeshua uses that example of those who, who, don't, who don't finish right well. And I think that that's, so I think that's the idea is, you know, we, we are called to action. We are called to do, to do something. Um, and if we don't take that step of acting, then we, we kind of end up, um, then we're not going to get free. We're not going to get out of whatever we're struggling with. Um, one of the things that um, Yishai Fleischer talked about in a previous court, uh, parsha that God's I wills, I will be, I will do, I will this. It's interesting that the only thing that he says that they're supposed to do is you shall know. And the idea that like, it's so fascinating how, um, but it's not you shall, you shall comprehend or you shall be aware of or you shall have this fact in your head. You shall be intimately knowledgeable of that I'm gonna do this. And what Yishai Fleischer was saying is it's like that that steps beyond factual understanding. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like people talk about you know head knowledge and heart knowledge that kind of thing. But it's this idea of like, you believe it, it changes you. And then the rabbi Mike looked on his head and I thought this is brilliant. You in order to, to truly know God so that it changes you, you need to know the world in light of who God is. In other words, it's not if you really believe that God can do all that God can do and that His commandments are true and His rewards and punishment and all that that the way that you live with the rest of the universe will show that. Sure. You will look at the sun and realize it only rises and sets because God makes it rise and set. Proper godly worldview. Right. You'll flip it on its head. Instead of seeing the universe as though somehow God's manipulating it, you will see the universe as simply a part of the you know, imagination of God. It's simply all within God's control, and therefore everything that I do needs to be in line with God's facts and reality and not within the reality that it looks like to me. And I think that that's something that's a real, it's a definite struggle. Um, it's something that's very, very difficult to do. Um, but I think, that, again, that gets back to what we're getting with here. If you think about it, one of the things that the, the, the sages commentary in that, um, that Gunekumash was so good, it's like, this passage teaches us so much about bitachon, the trust in God. The children of Israel were not exiting Egypt to step into the promised land. They were exiting Egypt to go into the wilderness with a million people or more. Um, you know, that, that matzah was only going to last them for so long, uh, never mind the water. And, and yet they had that so complete faith in God that had been built up from watching these plagues, from watching God 
if, uh, interact on their behalf, that they, they willingly chose to do so. It's a moment that got in time that God remembers so fondly. He repeats this over and over again. See, the time of the wilderness, when you came out of Egypt, um, the love for me you had in the wilderness. Um, and so that, that faith is, I think, really, really a beautiful, a beautiful point here. And um, the, the commentary in that section was saying that's true for us too. We can see the world through our own eyes and feel like, well, I can't, I can't choose to serve God in this way because that's going to cost me something. It cost me financially. I can't give away money to charity. I, I need that money for myself. Or I can't, I can't, uh, I can't tell my boss I need this holiday off because it's going to hurt my career or whatever it might be. And that's just from a man's perspective. You know, there are other things for women too, um, or I say, a working man, working woman could fit in the same bucket. Um, the point is that. This, this parsha, this whole story really teaches us we can have faith that God's in charge of all of that. And therefore, if we serve him, there is no cause and effect the way that the rest of the world works. They, uh, this, God tells the people of Israel, you know, no magic, no whatever, you know, trusted against you, no weapon against you, right? It's like those things don't work for you. They don't work against you. you know, Abraham is a tradition that Abraham actually had an astrological sign that he would never have children. But it doesn't apply to him. <laughs> it might work for everybody else. It doesn't work for you. Yes, sir. So the, uh, the hour plus that I had with the, with the rabbi yesterday, I, I, uh, I said, you know, in this week's portion, uh, Bo, Firstborn is killed. He said, "This week's portion is not bow; it's bushalot." I looked at him and I said, "What?" And he goes, "I'm just kidding." <laughs> <laughs> That's not it funny. It was a tough ride. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, don't ever joke about the Bible. I tell you. <laughs> so uh, my question to him was: I said, "You know, we, we kind of talk about this every year. Um, was it firstborn?" Men, or was it firstborn women, or was it firstborn both? And uh, and I said, you know, my my perspective is that if you get married, and you don't have any kids, then you guys are up for grabs on that night. But if you had kids, then you wouldn't be. Your firstborn would be up. For and uh, you know, he's uh, he's kind of nodding. Uh huh. Uh huh. So I said, you know, just jump in any time here, Rabbi. I'm just driving. You know. And um, he did not want to answer about the male female thing until he get his little phone out and look up and see what Rashi said. <laughs> the wisdom of the rabbi. So I thought we'd just kind of go around and, and see um, how many think that it was that women were not involved. Wait, what did Rashi say? I'm not going to tell you that right now. It's called a humash, yes. And Rashi's commentary built in <laughs> to the... Uh, Rashi says. By the way, he, uh, uh, Rabbi Polternak, the uh, guy in charge of IT for all of art school, is a good friend of the rabbis. So he, he loves the art school, Talmud, he loves the art school. Anyway. 
So how many, how many think that the firstborn women were not involved? So it's only male. Was that a firstborn woman saying that? Just checking, just checking. Smart girl. <laughs> and, and how many think that if, for example, uh, let's take the uh, younger Spurlock family, they are married, he is firstborn, and his son, Richard, is firstborn. So how many think if they were there in their household, two people would have died? They would have had the blood on their own. Yeah, we'd have blood on their own. Well, it would be good. But <laughs> Gentiles in an alternate universe. How many think in their family, two people would have died? I'm not going to answer their family, but I think that two family people would have like, died. Family like them, two people. Okay. And how many say one? Okay. You were alone in that period. <laughs> so says your firstborn. <laughs> well, the idea that a parent wouldn't be counted if they had a child, is, I mean, it just does say the firstborn. It does say the firstborn. You are correct. It also says that there was no house where That's there wasn't my a corpse. Thought, there's no house that was not affected. Well, right. and, and you haven't even asked the other question, which is in Morgan Gregory's household, would Gregory be firstborn of his father? He's firstborn of his father, but not of his mother. Yeah, I, I didn't know. We only went from the airport, not from Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, how many angels can dance on the head of a That's right. Yeah. So, what's the answer? He didn't what? give me an answer. Oh. oh That's a smart rabbi. No, 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 no. That's a smart rabbi. He said he wanted to uh, he wanted to get his, his act together before he spoke, and he would have an answer to me after I'll die. Oh, well, no. we'll see. We'll send that around. I would say by the time next time he's here. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't say which Habdalah. He didn't say which midnight. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's good, right? Around the Habdalah yeah. sometimes. But he, we, did, we did bring up a couple of different points. One was that uh, Pharaoh is presumably firstborn. And you can go back and kind of see that. Um, but Pharaoh did not die in that place. He may have died in the water. He may have died afterward. He may have died of a broken heart. He may he, not have been firstborn. Right? He may not have been firstborn. He was not the first right. there, there is a theory he's not. There's a theory he, most pharaohs were, the whole deal. If you look at the... But if his, you know, if his brother died, then yep. he would have been pharaoh. Sure. Or his healthy brother would have wiped out. That's right. <laughs> well, that's, that was my point. Is I didn't... Aren't you glad you're not those people? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> my, my point to the rabbi You would have had the blood, too. You would have had it. My point to the rabbi was twofold. One was the whole household thing. There doesn't appear to be... An illusion that whole households were wiped out, but rather a focus on the fact that there was at least a corpse in every home. Um, the second thing was that if Pharaoh was firstborn, he did not die. He woke up and his son died because it says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the guy in the dungeon. So, anyway. You know, I don't think they had any homes that only had two people in You know, because I have an idea about the tribal sure. living. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think the families were large, and then the, you know, a young couple that married would just probably be in there as well. So you're talking about Egyptians, right? Because um, we're not talking about Jews, we're talking about Egyptians. There also is a commentary from the sages, which is rather humorous, I think. Uh, not humorous, well, interesting, I guess to say. Basically, probably some interesting conversations around this time, that... Um, that God, this also allowed God to sort of expose all the immorality going on in Egypt. It's like, wait a minute, they were two, both the sons died in this house? Wait. <laughs> How does that work? How does that work? <laughs> you know. Josiah, what were you going to say? 
So in my tukun, it says a bahor is a male child who is his mother's first birth. Every bahor, but one in between, would be slain. The plague would begin with the firstborn of Paro and extend all the way down to the firstborn of the captive. But Paro, himself of Bahor, would escape. God would spare Paro so that he would testify the world regarding God's power. How about that? So that sage says, God was firstborn, but he got a buy. Well, temporary buy, not really. That's right, it's temporary. He said the firstborn of the mother. Yeah, yeah, definitely for the mother. That's different. Yeah. So, so which sage was that? Rachi, a nobody. You picked a nobody? Come. <laughs> and actually, if if we were to assume that Pharaoh is firstborn, there's a good chance that he was also at, at the uh, Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. Right. Well, he is in the movie. Gee whiz. So, yeah, he got it. Interestingly enough, this particular event, this, this death of the firstborn in the Exodus from Egypt, is so important, it's in the tefillin box. You go to the end of this week's portion. If you ever, re- if you ever go to the very beginning of your store and start flipping through for prayers, there's blessings for putting on tefillin, blessings for putting on tallit, and so forth. But there are bonus scripture passages. You know, if you if you want to read them all, um, extra extra, study extra credit, right? <laughs> uh, about the um, and for the tefillin specifically from this week's portion. And the reason is because it says she'll bind a sign upon your arm and it's to fill in between your eyes. Um, because that's so important to God that, um, that, that, that the, traditionally they put that little verse in that box. Which is so interesting that God, they would specifically, God would highlight those two things. Exodus from Egypt and then also the death of the firstborn. How he got them out of Egypt. Right. Um, and I think that, uh, first of all, the Exodus from Egypt, I think, is a fairly obvious one. That's huge. That's over and over and over again. How many commandments are because I took you out of the land of Egypt and so forth. And one of the six remembrances is that you remember that I took you out of the land of Egypt. All this. Death of the firstborn is a little more interesting. Like, why specifically that commandment? It's not, it's not all ten plagues. It reminds you absolutely of the death of God's firstborn. That's a really good one. I like that. I mean, that's Messiah right there. There definitely is a messianic component to it there. There also is, um, I think, I think the death of the firstborn also is the reason why it's the last plague, in my my view, and I may have possibly read this somewhere else, so if, I apologize. If Could be somebody else's view, too. Could be somebody else's view. Um, uh, is this idea that it emphasizes God's power over life and death. Like, up until this point, you could die from plagues, you could die from frogs, you know, along the way, um, or hail, but you're a... Uh, but that ultimately is an is an intermediary, you know. It's like, well, it almost it could look like a natural occurrence, maybe a very unnatural natural occurrence. Wow, the, the Jude, if you die of frogs, I'm going to call it unnatural. <laughs> May it never happen to you or I. <laughs> but then the um, well, definitely by flaming hands. Yeah, that one. Well, that, of course, that's also yeah. somewhat unnatural. Yeah, we're putting that into the unnatural category. But the death of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn is, as we said earlier, God acts on his own here. Yeah. They just died. There was no explanation. There was no reason. There was no nothing. But it was exactly who God said would die around the time you know, that God said it would happen. And it was so obvious that God himself was doing it. Well, it does say <clears throat> at midnight the Lord struck down right. all the firstborn. Right. So he didn't say which midnight for sure, but there well, was he a well Moses tells Pharaoh around midnight, right, whereas right. God acts on midnight. On midnight. Yeah. But the point is that which was around midnight. Um, 
the point is that, uh, that I'm getting at here is we one of the one of the prayers we pray every every single day, including Shabbat, is power over life and death. That God is the resurrector of the dead. He's also the one who had they call him the king of life and death. Oh, even in the morning, you restored my soul to me. Right, right, exactly right. So we see. I think the reason why, in my view, that's in the box is to remind you of the supreme power of God. The he box is near your heart. Right. He's not just, and on your head, your brain, yeah, that's right? right? He's not just simply the God of, who controls the sun or the rain or, the or, you know, or the frogs or, you know, even all of the natural occurrences around you. He controls your very life. He, everything is in God's hands. And if you remember that, then um, that's a, kind of makes the, you know, the offering for the firstborn so poignant. I have to say, I'm, whenever I read this passage, it makes me so... Um, or not every time, but you know, I think about the fact that we got a chance to do the, the firstborn shekel thing. Um, and I'm the redemption of the firstborn. It's so cool to have actually been able to do that. Well, it beats dying. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it does. <laughs> well, yes, it does, but it's also neat because it's a one time event. It doesn't happen again. You only can have one firstborn from, from, from the woman. Um, and there's only a certain time you can do it. So it was just really neat to get a chance to Baruch Hashem to be able to do that. Um, but again, it's like that just comes back to that same point, emphasizing that God's power. This uh, this year we read from the Gutnik, and uh, they don't use Passover. They use skip. I will skip. I will skip over you, your house. Because I see the blood, I'll skip over you. They use Passover. Skip over. And I just, it, I, I was tickled. By it. I just thought it was so cool. Yeah. Just skipped over. And then... It's it's Pesach throughout. There's no it never says Passover. It's Pesach. Cool, cool bit. Skipped over. I got skipped over. And it was a good thing. It was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Any final comments? Yes, Eva. Eva. I <laughs> found it. Do you want to talk about that 430 years? And reduce it down to 270 somehow? Mm. Uh, if not, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm ready, too. So. Um, well, yeah, we could. Uh, there is a really interesting theory about that. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, the Abraham discussion thing? Yeah, so basically the point is that God tells Abraham, your children will be in slavery for 430 years. Um, and the clock starts a, now. <laughs> right. Well, in a, in a land that is not their own, but it specifically says, right. they will be slaves in a land that's not their own, and, and so, um, or strangers in a land that's not their own, and then they will be enslaved. So it's not say slavery for 430 years, mm -hmm. but the stranger mm -hmm. element. So the sages teach that there was justification for God to actually enslave them for 430 years. But that because of God's mercy, not wanting to do that, um, time was cut short, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, for the sake of the elect. For the sake of the elect, right. Yeah, that's I've heard that uh, So what God chose to do is he counted the time, it's almost like a technicality, you know, he counted the time that Isaac was born, because Isaac is, a, is, is offspring of Abraham, who's a stranger in a strange land. So it counts, and if you take the time from Isaac is born up until the time that Moses leaves, it shrinks that, that window for the actual time in Egypt from 430 years to, what is it, is it 270? 270. And the actual time in slavery is actually even smaller than that. It's only about... Um, Maybe 130? Yeah, something like that. Something like you're, that. You're quoting Genesis or, 15. No, it's about 210, I think. Genesis 15, 13. The Lord said to Avram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Is that like the joke? 
where the Red Sea is only ankle deep. But the real miracle is the whole army of Egypt drowned in it. So the real miracle is it's not 400 years, but rather that you can have six, you can have 1.2 million people come out of Egypt after about 270 years. Right, right. No, I think that, I mean, it doesn't diminish it by any means. I think the cool thing about it that I like is the parallel in Revelation or, uh, to the cutting off for the sake of the elect, this idea that ultimately God is so cognizant of the suffering of his people. It's Matthew 24. 24, excuse me, yes. Except he says, to the day. I mean, that kind of like makes well, no, it no, no, a little no. bit more difficult no, but I think on that very day. But I think I mean, that it could be on the day from both, what he's both, talking to Both Galatians Abraham. 3 and Acts 7 quote that same thing, and they talk about 400 years in both of them. So on that day. It's, it's an important deal. But he, but he there's, there's, the, uh, there's another issue, too. Remember, you have... On that very day. You have uh, antonyms working here, or you have or two different sides in opposition to one another. Well, if Christians are claiming that in their book of Acts, then that wasn't true. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. But yeah, yeah, right. But I think either, even if that's not the case, if it is 400 years in Egypt, I think that the um, what's cool about that Midrash is it emphasizes God's awareness of the suffering of his people. That God is not only compassionate, but like any good lawyer, finds you know the appropriate loopholes <laughs> to... Um, to make it as gracious as possible. Or any good judge. Good judge, right. I think ultimately, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that I think that a true someone who truly believes in doing and in, in, in doing what's right and wants laws to do what's right will find loopholes. Well not say find loopholes, but they'll find ways to find mercy. They'll recognize that the law as it is but black and white sometimes in the extreme is ultimately counter to the intention of the law, which is to make life better for the people who live here. And so they will find a way to balance those so that the, the intent of the law, while staying within the law, is upheld, but at the same time that people are not so trampled, the law becomes itself a form of, of, uh, of evil. And I think that that's extremely important um, in, in something we sometimes are sadly lacking in human laws. Even if they were only enslaved for 210 or 230 years, you still have, as we have, in this country, been free, or been a country for that long. Um, obvious, obviously, it's easy for a people that have been there that long to completely forget. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm talking about Pharaoh. You know, there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. How's it possible that a famine that hit the entire planet for seven years and turned Egypt into a world-dominating country? couldn't know who Joseph was. Well, how can you have somebody today who doesn't even realize we have a constitution? Well, it does happen. Well, and that's, that's even far enough back in history. There are actually people today who deny the Holocaust happened. Yeah. Yeah. We have video footage, and we have survivors still alive that's right. They can talk about that. Or the Berlin Wall was built by Adolf Hitler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or whatever it might be. You know? uh, yeah. Nowadays, you believe anything you want. The world is flat. Um, the point is and there's that no moon and there's no moon landing. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> even celebrities believe that apparently. Um, hey, basketball players. Yeah, because they are astrophysicists. Um, they could have. That's a good middle ground. Technology, it could 
It, it could have been 400 years. It could have been 230. We're not really sure, but the point is that... Um, but the point that I'm trying to get at is that God is merciful. And I think that's the, really the lesson out of this. It says in the Psalms that God, um, God is aware of, that God uh, counts the death of the righteous precious. And the, and the idea is that God doesn't simply um, inflict his people with the suffering um, without thinking about it. It's very intentional. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's uh, when we go through hard times, it's on purpose with God's love and grace intertwined and that it's never more than we can bear. And it's exactly what you get here in that Midrash, whether that's true or not, the numbers are lined up, and it's what Yeshua references in Matthew 24, that God ultimately is going to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, that's you've it. had enough, but for the sake of my people, you're stopping. That's right. Or maybe more than we can bear, but he will help us to bear. Well, that works too. Or during it, provide a mm -hmm. way of escape. Mm -hmm. right. All right, um, let's see. Mr. Martin, would you close this in prayer? Sure. Father, we're, uh, we're grateful for our time together today. Thankful that you've given us a uh, Sabbath rest that's a foretaste of what we'll have in the world to come. We pray, Father, you would uh, bless us with a fantastic week, the coming week, and cause us to live our lives in a way that demonstrates you and your character to uh, those who come in contact with us. For all these things, in the name of Yeshua, our risen Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joshua.